So today, uh, I'm, I'm not opening with any kind of cool story because we do have a lot to cover, but um, today builds so much off of the previous story. As we just said, Peter just had this like tremendous moment. Like Jesus just praised him for his confession, this, this moment um, that all, all gospel writers kind of use a little bit as a, as a key moment in the story of, of, of Jesus and his disciples. And Matthew is not any different. Like we even see from the opening text, from that time, Jesus began to show us, like from that time, there was, there was a pivot of time that happened as part of this experience. And, and yes, Jesus is like, you are the Christ. You are this Messiah King. You are this anointed one that we've all been expecting. And then Jesus immediately pivots to give a little bit more definition of what this messianic mission is actually going to look like. And I think he says things that catch these disciples immediately off guard. I mean, you are the son of the living God. I got to die. It's like, oh, that, that's not, not what they expected. It says, from that time, Jesus began. And, and that's a phrase that appears one other time in Matthew, in Matthew 4, um, right after the, the, the baptism of Jesus, the start of his ministry. It's as if Matthew kind of frames these, these two big movements. One is like, now we're going to watch Jesus like showcase uh, a lot about the kingdom, and now we're going to see him point towards his like death and kingship, and, and so we're going to we're going to move in that direction from this point on, heading to Jerusalem. Luke will actually say Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, and so we get a little bit of that um, that pivot here from Matthew of going. Now we're starting to head towards the cross, and he says, "I must go to Jerusalem." Which, once again, you have um, all sorts of imagery uh, that Jerusalem has to be the place. You have someone like John the Baptist look at Jesus and say, behold, the, son, uh, the lamb of God who takes away the sin in the world. Well, guess where lambs don't take away sin? Galilee synagogues. Where they go to die is Jerusalem. And I think Jesus has that in mind. This is where I need to go. And Jesus begins to connect with this imagery of the suffering servant, stuff that we as Christians are like, yes, Jesus had to suffer. But, but there was imagery in the book of Isaiah around one that would come that's going to suffer. And up till now, I mean, so much of the, the messianic, the, the king expectation that everybody uh, was look, looking forward to was victory, was defeat of enemies. It was very David-ish. It was very Davidic. They, they were expecting one who was going to come take the throne and make Israel all that it was supposed to be. That was, that was what people expected. There wasn't a lot of connection with that Messiah and this suffering servant out of Isaiah. Actually, most Jews would read the suffering servant stories and actually think about Israel as the suffering servant. We, we are the ones who suffer. It is by the wounds that we get inflicted as Israel that, that actually brings about healing in the world. So it's much more how they would frame those texts. But there's all these little pieces in those texts that also just don't make sense that way, that, that are just so restorative in nature that for Israel to be those things, it just doesn't, doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't connect. And, and there's a persona that's presented there. And so Jesus now starts entering into his ministry. And it's like, you know, some of the language around the one who needs to suffer and die so that things will be restored, that's me. And he starts presenting that to his disciples. And of course, Peter reacts to this. 
Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So far be it from me. Um, it's a Septuagint, actually, idiom. That far, um, may God forbid this happening. May, may, may this, God forbid it. It's Peter saying, this is not the mission. <laughs> Jesus, no, there's no way you're going to die. And we're going to see Peter still struggle with this later when Jesus gets arrested and Peter takes out a sword to defend him once again. Because Peter has an expectation of what this Messiah should be and should do. Right? No, Jesus, you're the king. You've come to restore things. David didn't die like that. David took the throne. You've got to take the throne, Jesus. When you go to Jerusalem, it's not so that all the people in power just kill you. It's for you to take over things. And Jesus is telling them, I'm going to die. And they have watched plenty of religious figures come and go who have stirred up crowds, spoken against Rome, spoken against religious leadership, and have died because of it. And so Jesus is actually just connecting himself to a story they've seen past thousands of times. And Jesus, Peter, wants nothing of it. And there's a fascinating wordplay to go with the previous week's story. Peter just gets identified as the rock. He is the rock. Uh, he's getting renamed Peter. He gets called rock. And then the language actually reads, uh, it says he's a hindrance. It's also like a stumbling block. He becomes a stumbling block to Jesus. Jesus, Peter, you're the rock. What kind of rock are you going to be? You're going to be a stumbling block for Jesus. Oh, that's not the rock I was hoping for. And there's just imagery happening here. And it's the wonderful storytelling. And then Jesus certainly calls him Satan. Now, let's deal with that word a little bit. Um, Satan, um, sometimes it is a title like the Satan, um, but it also simply means like adversary or opponent. Um, that uh, it's, not, it's not even always a negative character. Um, even even the, the verb form is used of God. God can be, can like Satan, can, can be adversarial or oppose somebody else. So it's like, is how we hear, get behind me, Satan, maybe how Jesus, I don't know. Perhaps Jesus is simply saying, Peter, you are my adversary right now, my opponent right now. Stop being an impediment, stop being the stumbling block for the very mission that God has. And we should also note how in a very honor-shame world that the Middle East was, for a disciple to pull aside their teacher, their rabbi, their authority, and say, no, would have not been okay on, on any front. Now, Jesus is humble and everything else, but what Peter did was so socially unacceptable um, that I think the rebuke is, is a bit legit here, too, uh, that it's not... I don't think anybody would hear that rebuke and go, Jesus is out of line. I think everybody would be like, Peter is way out of line. Um, not Jesus here. And so um, I, I think we've got to be cautious to, to, to hear it a different way. But Peter, once again, Peter's like, this is how the world works. You go, you show up with power, you have victory, we win the day. And Jesus is saying, that's not God's way. Peter, you're, you're setting your mind to how the world thinks. And the things of man, that's how everybody thinks. That's how Xerxes thought. That's how Nebuchadnezzar, that's how everybody thinks about kings. That's how Caesar thinks in Rome. Peter, you need to think differently. And the invitation 
that sort of shows up on the tail end of that is towards um, what, what some theologians have termed like cruciform, the cruciform life, this cross-formed life. Because Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Forever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus moves to language of the cross, and for Jewish people, this isn't foreign ideas. Uh, cross imagery was, was, was certainly uh, permeate the, the, the culture. Um, every so-called Messiah that has shown up, every insurrectionist who had gone against Rome, like they had mass crucifixions. Some, some history reports up to 6,000 in a day of, of people that stood up, tried to stand up against Rome, tried to do something against religious leaders and authorities, and ended up being crucified thousands at a time. Rome, uh, I think the, the phrasing is like Greek, the, the Greeks or the Persians invented crucifixion, but Rome perfected it. Um, that, that they found a way to make shameful suffering the centerpiece. People would be naked, people would suffer for hours in anguish on the cross. It was meant to instill anybody walking by that day, don't you dare stand up against Rome. And that's what they would use it for. And so it was used. Rome wouldn't traditionally do it to its citizens unless they were trying to overthrow the government. But it was particularly reserved for foreigners, slaves, and foreign insurrectionists particularly. It's common. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, take up your cross. He hasn't actually spoken about his crucifixion yet, though that's certainly in play as a, as a reader of Matthew. But he, he's, he's pointing to the fact that he's going to die, and he's inviting his people into the very same thing. And if you're going to be my follower, the finale of going to Jerusalem will be death. And are you willing to come too? We even see this with Thomas after the resurrection um, of Lazarus, right before they head up, head into um, Jerusalem, Thomas is like, I guess we're all just going to go and die. Like, that's the expectation of his disciples. Now, if the goal was to follow the Messiah into Jerusalem and drive out Rome and all that kind of stuff, you know what that doesn't entail? Actually, probably not a lot of self-denial, right? It's victory. It's we win the day. We get to celebrate. We get to have the party and the parade and the streets and all those sort of things. And then Jesus is like, I'm going to go and I'm going to die. Who's with me? It's a very different invitation. And so there's some sort of self-denial that Jesus speaks of here. And to the first disciples, this is going to sound like we're going to go and we're going to be killed with you. But we will see the rest of the New Testament actually pick up on this. We actually see no disciples die with Jesus on Easter or on Good Friday. Um, He's just crucified with a few other criminals. He's not even given his own moment. And then eventually uh, most of the disciples do get killed for their faith. But we will watch the New Testament reflect on this. This, this, de- this death, perhaps that seemed more literal to the early disciples as they hear these words come out of Jesus' mouth. Uh, we'll watch the New Testament writers pick up on the symbolism of the death. Like we'll have Paul say, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Now he's not literally saying I have been put on a literal cross and died with Jesus. But he does pick up on the symbolism of that death. Now imagine, you're expecting this Messiah. 
I think we, we, we miss just how, how deep this really is. You're expecting the Messiah, you're expecting this Christ to come and fight, out, fight evil, to drive out the evil ones, to fight his enemies and to win the day. And Jesus says, I'm not, that's not what I've come to do. And I'm gonna invite you into a new way. And it's denying yourself and taking a cross. So what does that actually mean to take up the cross? Because most likely our mind, I mean, it's phrasing that we use all the time, right? To endure the cross, take up the cross. Secular world uses it just like the, the Christian world. And most likely our mind goes to like enduring difficulties or challenges with some sort of resilience and perseverance. That's good. I don't think that's wrong. But I think there's so much more that we actually miss out of on the cross, on, on the cruciform life that I think Jesus is actually pointing to for his disciples. This cross-formed life. Michael Gorman actually is one of the theologians that made this term pretty popular. And he says, what Paul means by conformity to the crucified Christ is showing that, that this conformity is a dynamic correspondence and daily life to the strange story of Christ crucified as a primary way of expressing the love and grace of God to pull everything into the tremendous gravitational field of the cross. Because it's, it's not enough to just speak of resurrection. Resurrection's wonderful. I'm for resurrection. It'll be a wonderful thing to celebrate on Easter. And it's, it's not just enough to speak of big ideas like atonement, the way that Jesus cleanses us, because the book of Hebrews will focus there a lot of attention. But then you find Paul, and you find Peter, and you find these other authors. And, and what they focus on is peculiar, because they can simply say quite often, uh, I, I've come to preach on Christ and his atonement, or Christ and his death. But Paul says things like, I, I desire to know nothing amongst, like, nothing other than Christ and him crucified. And, and you find this kind of unique focus on the cross throughout Paul's writings, where he could easily just talk about Jesus' death. And it, it begs the question, why did Jesus have to be crucified of all of his deaths? Like, if I, if I was telling the story, maybe, I would have Jesus like in the temple area and then the high priest, for whatever reason, stabs Jesus and then he stumbles into the Holy of Holies and his blood is poured out on the altar that's in the special Holy of Holies and atonement for the world is achieved. Like rich in symbolism, like beautiful storytelling, right? I, I wouldn't go to hey, you know what Rome's doing to kill everybody that stands up and it seems like they're acting like kings or insurrectionists? Um, they, he shames them. They make them look terrible. Uh, everybody thinks that's the most like, horrific thing. We're going to have Jesus die that way. And yet Paul, time and time again, goes, let's talk about the cross. It becomes sort of this epicenter of the story. In a lot of ways, and, and um, we'll, we'll hit on this when we finally get there, there's so much symbolism of how Caesar was coronated and how the cross, the progression of the cross actually takes place. As if the cross itself is Jesus' like coronation ceremony. This is where the Son of God becomes king at Good Friday. And then he invites people in. He says, I need you to take up your cross. So once again, what does that mean? Because the cross does mean a lot. I'm, I'm not one of the people that's like, here's the one thing 
that Reformed theology says the cross has to be. Sorry, I just, I think it's more broad and beautiful than that. It's the pinnacle of divine self-disclosure. It's the eternal moment of forgiveness. It's divine solidarity with human suffering. It's enduring model of discipleship. It's a supreme demonstration of divine love. It's beauty that saves the world. It's refounding of the world around the axis of love. It's the overthrowing of the Satan. It's the shaming of the principalities and powers. It's the unmasking of mob violence. It's the condemnation of state violence. It's the expose of political power. It's the abolition of war. It's the sacrifice to end sacrifices. It's the great divide of humankind. It's the healing center of the cosmos. It's the death by which death is conquered. It's the lamb upon its throne. It's the tree of life recovered and revealed. And that doesn't even exhaust more definitions that could be there. Because there's so much there. That's the reason why Paul can say, uh, I, I desire to know nothing amongst you except for Christ and him crucified. Well, if it's just one thing, he's going to know that really quickly. But I think he looks at the cross and says, there's so much of who God is that if I were to only know Christ and him crucified, I would never exhaust my knowledge. It's a scandal. It's foolishness, as he will go on to say, that to the Jews, you would say, hey, this dead guy on the cross, this is the Messiah. And the Jews would say, well, that's foolishness or a scandal. And to the Gentiles, he would say, this dead guy was killed in the manner that all your other criminals are killed. It was foolishness. It's a stumbling block to them. Yet this is a symbol we wear around our necks and hang and put on the table. It's a peculiar one. It's a unique symbol. It's not raw, shining like the sun. It's not Krishna riding triumphantly through the heavenly clouds. It's not Buddha sitting in a tranquil bliss of enlightenment. It's, it's Jesus. And his murder weapon. Fleming Rutledge says, the cross is by a very long way the most irreligious object ever to find its way into the heart of faith. And, and we see this early on. As early as about, um, uh, there's a, there's a, in AD 200, at least it's around where they date it, there's sort of this um, engraving in a uh, plaster in Rome, uh, kind of near Palpatine Hill. And, um, and it's this, it's a picture of the engraving, it's in a museum now. Um, and then people have clarified the picture a little bit with um, sort of sketch drawing. This is really what's on the drawing, what, what is engraved. And it's this blasphemous graffiti intended to mock someone named Alexa Menos. And it's a donkey, uh, someone with the head of a donkey on a cross. And it says, Alexa Menos worships his God. Someone who knew Alexa Menos thought, whatever Alexa Menos thinks about this Jesus, it's absurd, it's ridiculous, it's foolish. A God that ends up on a cross, they must be an ass. yet the cross is the way. And we are invited into that way. To deny self and all the ways that the world seduces us into what the self is and be informed, or to be formed by a cross-shaped way of life. What does that look like? Well, I think there's a lot of ways that the world and the self is driven towards, like the self. The self wants to attack, win, be victorious. But the cruciform life is defiant at times, confident, 
and at times willing to lose. It's interesting when Paul gives like very like almost military pictures, like put on the full armor of Christ, do all these things. Like here are all the ways that that we as a community can put on the armor of Christ because it's actually y'all put on the armor of Christ. And then he says, so that you can stand in that day. Not so you can go out and swipe all your enemies with their sword, but so you can stand. Because we tend to think of other people as the evil, the bad people. Maybe it's the other political party. Maybe it's ISIS. Maybe it's, I mean, whatever. Everybody has their own views of what the bad guys are. And if we got rid of that, then the world would be a better place. And how well has that worked in history? And we're called to fight evil, but not to be shaped by it, to stand with Jesus, to be informed by Christ, not one that is threatening or fighting uh, others to hurt others, harm others, but to stand and not back down. And if evil becomes so severe that it's like, well, well, then we'll kill you then, it's like, all right, I get to be a martyr then. That's the invitation in. It's upside down. A cross-shaped life is so peculiar. Like the church, in some ways, gloried in their martyrs in the first 300 years. You actually had people, a few leaders say, stop, stop running into the fire all the time. And the idea that is coming up quite a bit in our world, and, and I understand our political leanings here are not super conservative, but some of us are, and some of us have plenty of relatives that tend to use this, this kind of language, the sort of, we need to fight to defend our faith, right? We need to take up arms to defend our faith. It's language I hear quite a bit lately. And I think the early church would say, what are you thinking? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, not the blood of a battlefield. That's, that's the cross way of life. It's backwards. It's like Revelation 12, that you say, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives, even unto death. They're willing to say, it's the blood of Jesus that does this. Not, not the blood of victory in a field. The cross-formed way is just different. How do you conquer evil in the cross-formed way? It's not by attacking it, but by willing to suffer and to die. Because the battlefield is not people, it's powers. And as Paul will say, it's powers, principalities. It's not flesh and blood. It's, it's something greater. And the greatest ammunition we have against the enemy is to worship in suffering and in death. It's cross-formed. You want to take up your cross and follow him. Deny self, because the self wants things like pride. We don't like going low. We don't like humility. It's not a very natural state for most of us. We, we want the likes. We want people to notice. We want all the things. But the cross-formed way is low, right? Philippians 2, Jesus had equality with God. He had position and power. He could claim all of it. It was even Satan that came along and was like, hey, I'll give all that to you. You know all the kings and everything, all the kingdoms? And hear me. It's a, it's a, it's a reasonable offer for Satan because I'll tell you what, he probably had a fair amount of control of the kings and the kingdoms in the world. And he's like, Jesus, you can have it. And Jesus is like, this is not the way. The self wants to preserve your own self, your own reputation, 
but the cruciformed way of self-sacrificial. As once again, as Philippians 2 says, he, he took the form then of a servant. He, he, he sought to serve others. He sought um, to, to seek the good of others, to be others-centered. Philippians 2 uh, will go on to say, um, yes, that he found his appearance of a man, but he humbled himself according to becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So once again, Paul being like, let's remind you, the cross is the centerpiece of the death. Not murder in the Holy of Holies, whatever other stories you come up with, the cross. And he instructs them, says, so do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others above yourself. That's cruciformed. The self wants position, but cruciformed is a servant. The self likes to hoard, to get more, to have more comfort, more stability, more stuff. And the cruciformed is generous. The self likes to build empires around, I think, a lot of those things. But the cruciformed is not the kingdom of empire, but the kingdom of shalom, of peace. Where guns are turned into farming tools. Where donkeys are ridden into the town instead of war horses. It's so backwards. And sometimes this is the most intoxicating one. Because we don't even realize it often. Like, how much do we really want to be cruciformed on this front? That perhaps instead of thinking America is the greatest nation, and hear me, there's tons of wonderful things about America. Don't hear me say it's not. But perhaps, perhaps it's a little more like Babylon and Egypt in the story than we like to think. I'm going to get really personal. It's going to be some jabs here. Perhaps many of the things we've learned to enjoy about our lives have come at quite a cost. A cost that most of us verbally would be like, yeah, I don't agree with that. Slavery is bad, right? Hopefully we can all stand in this room and go, slavery is a really bad thing, right? But are we willing to really live a cruciform life? To go, I desire the kingdom of God at whatever sacrifice to me for the sake of somebody else. So therefore, I will buy a $9 chocolate bar, right? Because that's how much it's going to cost to buy a chocolate bar that's not made from oppressive labor practices and things like that. But that would be cruciform. That would be saying, Jesus, your kingdom matters because, and, and in it, all people matter. And so the things I consume and the empire I feel really comfortable being a part of, I really have to think through and perhaps even push against the darkness around. And I can come up here and preach about like the personal sin of greed and, and, and generosity, and all of you would be like, yeah, that's right. You shouldn't be greedy. That's a really good reminder, all that kind of stuff, which is great. And cruciform life would be a generous life. But it would also be able to ask questions like, how can we live in an arrangement of the world where we're the phenomenon of billionaires and billions of people that live on less than $2 a day. That doesn't seem right. And some of you are like, Chris is now a Marxist. <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. And I read the prophets, and they rail against that kind of stuff. And I read Jesus, and I read Paul and James, and they have a lot to say around this very area. And we all feel rather comfortable in the empire that we live in. 
can hear me. Some of it's wonderful. Freedoms, all sorts of that. I think a lot of that's great. But it also gives us a pretty comfortable middle class that many of us experience. And maybe we pursue the cruciform way to say, you know what, some of that's not good and right and true and reflective of the cross. And I need to learn to sacrifice for the sake of the good of someone else. By the things I consume, by the gentrification I experience, whatever it may be. The self wants victory, but cruciform are willing to lose, as I said. Every four years we get this unique experience, right? Of the Olympics, that's what I'm talking about. Um, and there's victory and defeat, and it's wonderful. And that's where victory is a great thing. There's nothing wrong with sports and competition. But that same year is the year that our politics kick in quite a bit. We have a wonderful election of two people that none of us want in six months. And it's a fight. It's a fight around who's the most bombastic, who's the strongest, who can win for our party. We have to win because if the other team loses, everything's going to be destroyed, right? Both sides talk that way, right? If Trump wins, this nation's over. If Biden wins again, this nation's over because he'll probably die and Kamala will take over and she's the worst. That's what everybody thinks. That's the argument. That's the argument on the radio. And it's just language that is just so dangerous in a way that's just not Christ-like. And if you're like, well, we have to do something, well, maybe it is just flipping everything over. Like in the 1920s, 1930s, you had Germans who were coming off of a really failed World War I. They were shamed. They just, like, you, you had these young guys who felt like they were losing their country. And 30, 40, 50, a bunch of academics, like Nietzsche, started writing and said, you know what? Religion's the worst. And you know what, you know what matters? Like power. Ubermensch. We need, we need men. It's the language of Nietzsche. He was heavily patriarchal. We need men. We need, we need the Ubermensch to take over in power. We, we need, that is where victory is, when, when we could seize all the power and control the world. And then you had someone that spoke their language. Came one who said, we're going to restore a powerful Germany. We're going to make it great again. And he was bombastic. He made others the enemy and said, we must win the fight. And it's language we use right now in a lot of our politics. I, I worry. And for us as a church to not live that way, to be the people to go, that's not the way of Jesus. Because what does a prophet a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man or woman give in return for his soul? What good is living the, the other way? And Jesus says, it's, it's not. It's, it's going to destroy you. You might get the victory, but it's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy us. So in all this, if you hear some form of aestheticism, um, sort of this, I have to suffer then all the time in order to be a Christian, I have to be miserable to be a follower of Jesus, then we miss all the other statements that are kind of nestled in there. Because he says, whoever loses his life for my sake, oh, he will find life. You want a real life? You want fullness of your soul? This upside-down way is what we're invited into.
come die. Die to conformity to the world. Die to the self and all the things that the self so naturally wants. And in it, come truly live. And hear me, all of this can really actually change the world. It has in the past. There's, there's a world of rebellion, I think, that the church is brought part of as part of some of this language, right? The symbol of the cross was a symbol of like standing against powers and authorities. Now, some of those might be literal. Some of those might be um, more spiritual in nature. But there's a rebelliousness that I think Jesus is inviting that his first hearers would definitely hear in that invitation to the cross. So how do we do that? I, I just think daily acts of rebellion. We allow ourselves to be formed, as I said last week, by a text that's thousands of years old. We confess a creed that's 2,000 years old, right? And I, we don't say it a lot here. Not like, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. A creed that stood for years for the church. We pray prayers and do liturgies. We sit with Jesus in contemplation. We rebel against the world as it is. Because I know myself. I know how easily myself is seduced by the ways of the world at any given moment. Conformed to the world, I need the practices of Jesus to rebel against the age around me. Good theology is not enough to stand against the powers of the world. We need spiritual formation. In the face of tribalism and rage and everything else that'll happen over the next six months, what would it look like to be the people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness? Where's that nowadays? Gentleness? That's out the window. Self-control. In the face of busy and distracted and noise, we need silence and solitude with God and himself. In a world of exhaustion, we need Sabbath and restful practices. In the face of consuming and materialism, we need the practices of justice and simplicity that come from Jesus' vision for our lives. In the face of independence and self-actualizations, we need community practices based around the identity that comes not from within of how I best feel about myself, but an identity that comes from Jesus himself of who we are. What would happen to be a cruciformed people? That's a very pleasant little noise. Um, what would happen to be a cruciform people? We took on the counterformation, the countercultural ways of taking up the cross. Um, this is a quote from Tish Harrison Warson of what it looked like for a people to be cruciformed. She was speaking of the slave trade. She said the slave trade was crippled and eventually outlawed, not because of a few heroes. So we have our heroes. We have William Wilberforce and others, but because thousands upon thousands of peacemakers made little choices. Each time we make a small choice towards justice or buy fair trade or seek to share instead of hoard, we pass peace where we are in the ways that we can. And God could take these ordinary things and like fish and bread, bless them and multiply them. We can make revolution stories out of smallness. And so the invitation is to deny yourself in all the little ways as much as big ways. To stop conforming to the world and to take up our crosses that look so distinct and upside down with our crucified Savior. And we follow a king that's not of this world. We stand strongly to say that is of Satan. That is of the enemy. Here I stand. I can do no other. 
and we seek the good wherever it may be found.